Chapter Eleven of the Pioneers, or the Sources of the Susquehanna, a descriptive tale by James Fenimore Cooper. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Eleven. Quote, and fools who came to scoff remain to pray. Unquote. Goldsmith. Notwithstanding the united labors of Richard and Benjamin, the long room was but an extremely inartificial temple. Benches, made in the coarsest manner, and entirely with a view to usefulness, were arranged in rows for the reception of the congregation, while a rough unpainted box was placed against the wall in the center of the length of the apartment as an apology for a pulpit. Something like a reading desk was in front of this rostrum, and a small mahogany table from the mansion house, covered with a spotless damask cloth, stood a little on one side by the way of an altar. Branches of pines and hemlocks were stuck in each of the fissures that offered in the unseasoned and hastily completed woodwork of both the building and its furniture while festoons and hieroglyphics met the eye in vast profusion along the brown sides of the scratch-coated walls. As the room was only lighted by some ten or fifteen miserable candles, and the windows were without shutters, it would have been but a dreary cheerless place for the solemnities of a Christmas Eve, had not the large fire that was crackling at each end of the apartment given an air of cheerfulness to the scene, by throwing an occasional glare of light through the vistas of bushes and faces. The two sexes were separated by an area in the center of the room, immediately before the pulpit. Amid a few benches lined this space, that were occupied by the principal personages of the village and its vicinity. This distinction was rather a gratuitous concession made by the poor and less polished part of the population than a right claimed by the favorite few. One bench was occupied by the party of Judge Temple, including his daughter, and, with the exception of Dr. Todd, no one else appeared willing to incur the imputation of pride by taking a seat in what was literally the high place of the tabernacle. Richard filled the chair that was placed behind another table in the capacity of clerk, while Benjamin, after heaping sundry logs on the fire, posted himself nigh by, in reserve for any movement that might require cooperation it would greatly exceed our limits to attempt a description of the congregation, for the dresses were as various as the individuals, some one article of more than usual finery, and perhaps the relic of other days, was to be seen about most of the females, in connection with the coarse attire of the woods. This wore a faded silk that had gone through at least three generations, over coarse woolen black stockings, that a shawl, whose dyes were as numerous as those of the rainbow, over an awkwardly fitting gown of rough brown woman's wear. In short, each one exhibited some favorite article, and all appeared in their best, both men and women, while the groundworks in dress in either sex were the coarse fabrics manufactured within their own dwellings. One man appeared in the dress of a volunteer company of artillery, of which he had been a member in the down countries, 
precisely for no other reason than because it was the best suit he had. Several, particularly of the younger men, displayed pantaloons of blue, edged with red cloth down the seams, part of the equipments of the Templeton Light Infantry, from a little vanity to be seen in boughten clothes. There was also one man in a rifle frock, with its fringes and folds of spotless white, striking a chill to the heart with the idea of its coolness, although the thick coat of brown homemade that was concealed beneath preserved a proper degree of warmth. There was a marked uniformity of expression in countenance, especially in that half of the congregation who did not enjoy the advantages of the polish of the village. A sallow skin that indicated nothing but exposure was common to all, as was an air of great decency and attention mingled generally with an expression of shrewdness and, in the present instance, of active curiosity. Now and then a face and dress were to be seen among the congregation that differed entirely from this description. If pockmarked and florid with gartered legs and a coat that snugly fitted the person of the wearer, it was surely an English immigrant who had bent his steps to this retired quarter of the globe. If hard-featured and without color, with high cheekbones, it was a native of Scotland, in similar circumstances. The short, black-eyed man, with a cast of the swarthy Spaniard in his face, who rose repeatedly to make room for the bells of the village as they entered, was a son of Aaron, who had lately left off his pack and become a stationary trader in Templeton. In short, half the nations in the north of Europe had their representatives in this assembly, though all had closely assimilated themselves to the Americans in dress and appearance, except the Englishmen. He, indeed, not only adhered to his native customs in attire and living, but usually drove his plough among the stumps in the same manner as he had before done on the plains of Norfolk, until dear-bought experience taught him the useful lesson that a sagacious people knew what was suited to their circumstances better than a casual observer or a sojourner who was, perhaps, too much prejudiced to compare, and peradventure too conceited to learn. Elizabeth soon discovered that she divided the attention of the congregation with Mr. Grant. Timidity, therefore, confined her observation of the appearances which we have described to stolen glances, but, as the stamping feet was now becoming less frequent, and even the coughing and other little preliminaries, of a congregation settling themselves down into a reverential attention were ceasing, she felt emboldened to look around her. Gradually all noises diminished, until the suppressed cough denoted that it was necessary to avoid singularity, and the most profound stillness pervaded the apartment. The snapping of the fires as they threw a powerful heat into the room was alone heard, and each face and every eye were turned on the divine. At this moment a heavy stamping of feet was heard in the passage below, as if a newcomer was releasing his limbs from the snow that was necessarily clinging to the legs of a pedestrian. It was succeeded by no audible tread, but directly Mohegan, followed by the leather stocking and the young hunter, made his appearance. Their footsteps would not have been heard as they trod the apartment in their moccasins, but for the silence which prevailed. The Indian moved with great gravity across the floor, and observing a vacant seat next to the judge, he took it in a manner that manifested his sense of his own dignity. Here 
drawing his blanket closely around him so as to partly conceal his countenance, he remained during the service immovable but deeply attentive. Natty passed the place that was so frequently taken by his companion, and seated himself on one end of a log that was lying near the fire, where he continued with his rifle standing between his legs, absorbed in reflection, seemingly of no very pleasing nature. The youth found a seat among the congregation, and another silence prevailed. Mr. Grant now arose and commenced his service with the sublime declaration of the human prophet. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The example of Mr. Jones was unnecessary to teach the congregation to rise. The solemnity of the divine effected this as by magic. After a short pause, Mr. Grant proceeded with the solemn and winning exhortation of his service. Nothing was heard but the deep though affectionate tones of the reader as he went slowly through this exordium, until, something unfortunately striking the mind of Richard as incomplete, he left his place and walked on tiptoe from the room. When the clergyman bent his knees in prayer and confession, the congregation so far imitated his example as to resume their seats, whence no succeeding effort of the divine during the evening was able to remove them in a body. Some rose at times, but by far the larger part continued, unbending, observant, it is true, but it was the kind of observation that regarded the ceremony as a spectacle rather than a worship in which they were to participate. Thus deserted by his clerk, Mr. Grant continued to read, but no response was audible. The short and solemn pause that succeeded each petition was made. Still, no voice repeated the eloquent language of the prayer. The lips of Elizabeth moved, but they moved in vain, and, accustomed as she was to the service of the churches of the metropolis, she was beginning to feel the awkwardness of the circumstance most painfully when a soft, low female voice repeated after the priest, We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. Startled at finding one of her own sex in that place who could rise superior to natural timidity, Miss Temple turned her eyes in the direction of the penitent. She observed a young female on her knees, but a short distance from her, with her meek face humbly bent over her book. The appearance of this stranger, for such she was entirely to Elizabeth, was light and fragile. Her dress was neat and becoming, and her countenance, though pale and slightly agitated, excited deep interest by its sweet and melancholy expression. A second and a third response was made by this juvenile assistant, when the manly sounds of a male voice proceeded from the opposite part of the room. Miss Temple knew the tones of the young hunter instantly, and struggling to overcome her own diffidence, she added her low voice to the number. All this time Benjamin stood thumbing the leaves of a prayer book with great industry, but some unexpected difficulties prevented his finding the place before the divine reached the close of the confession. However, Richard reappeared at the door, and, as he moved lightly across the room, he took up the response in a voice that betrayed no other concern than that of not being heard. In his hand he carried a small open box, with the figures, eight by ten, written in black paint on one of its sides, 
which, having placed in the pulpit, apparently as a footstool for the divine, he returned to his station in time to say sonorously, Amen. The eyes of the congregation very naturally were turned to the windows, as Mr. Jones entered with his singular load, and then, as if accustomed to his general agency, were again bent on the priest in close and curious attention. The long experience of Mr. Grant admirably qualified him to perform his present duty. He well understood the character of his listeners, who were mostly a primitive people in their habits and who being a good deal addicted to subtleties and nice distinctions in their religious opinions viewed the introduction of any such temporal assistance as form into their spiritual worship not only with jealousy but frequently with disgust he had acquired much of his knowledge from studying the great book of human nature as it lay open in the world and knowing how dangerous it was to contend with ignorance uniformly endeavored to avoid dictating where his better reason taught him it was the most prudent to attempt to lead. His orthodoxy had no dependence on his cassock. He could pray with fervor and with faith, if circumstances required it, without the assistance of his clerk, and he had even been known to preach a most evangelical sermon in the winning manner of native eloquence without the aid of a cambric handkerchief. In the present instance he yielded, in many places, to the prejudices of his congregation, and when he had ended there was not one of his new hearers who did not think the ceremonies less papal and offensive, and more conformant to his or her own notions of devout worship, than they had been led to expect from the, a service of forms. Richard found in the divine during the evening a most powerful co-operator in his religious schemes. In preaching, Mr. Grant endeavored to steer a middle course between the mystical doctrines of those sublimated creeds which daily involved their professors in the most absurd contradictions, and those fluent roles of moral government which would reduce the Savior to the level of the teacher of a school of ethics. Doctrine it was necessary to preach, for nothing less would have satisfied the disputatious people who were his listeners and who would have interpreted silence on his part into a tacit acknowledgment of the superficial nature of his creed. We have already said that among the endless variety of religious instructors, the settlers were accustomed to hear every denomination urge its own distinctive precepts, and to have found one different to this interesting subject would have been destructive to his influence. But Mr. Grant so happily blended the universally received opinions of the Christian faith with the dogmas of his own church, that although none were entirely exempt from the influence of his reasons, very few took any alarm at the innovation. When we consider the great diversity of the human character, influenced as it is by education, by opportunity, and by the physical and moral conditions of the creature, my dear hearers, he earnestly concluded, it can excite no surprise that creeds so very different in their tendencies should grow out of a religion revealed, it is true, but whose revelations are obscured by the lapse of ages, and whose doctrines were, at the fashion of the countries in which they were first promulgated, frequently delivered in parables, and in a language abounding in metaphors, and loaded with figures. On points where the learned have in purity of heart been compelled to differ, the unlettered will necessarily be at variance. 
but happily for us, my brethren, the fountain of divine love flows from a source too pure to admit of pollution in its course. It extends to those who drink of its vivifying waters, the peace of the righteous, and life everlasting. It endures through all time, and it pervades creation. If there be mystery in its workings, it is the mystery of a divinity, with a clear knowledge of the nature, the might, and the majesty of God. There might be conviction, but there could be no faith. If we are required to believe in doctrines that seem not in conformity with the deductions of human wisdom, let us never forget that such is the mandate of, of wisdom that is infinite. It is sufficient for us that enough is developed to point our path aright, and direct our wandering steps to that portal which shall open on the light of an eternal day. Then, indeed, it may be humbly hoped that the film which has been spread by the subtleties of earthly arguments will be dissipated by the spiritual light of heaven, and that our hour of probation by the aid of divine grace, being once passed in triumph, will be followed by an eternity of intelligence and endless ages of fruition. All that is now obscure shall become plain to our expanded faculties, and what our present senses may seem irreconcilable to our limited notions of mercy, of justice, and of love, shall stand irradiated by the light of truth. Confessedly, the suggestions of omniscience and the acts of an all-powerful benevolence. What a lesson of humility, my brethren, might not each of us obtain from a review of his infant hours, and the recollection of his juvenile passions? How differently do the same acts of parental rigor appear in the eyes of the suffering child and of the chastened man? when the sophist would supplant with the wild theories of his worldly wisdom the positive mandates of inspiration, let him remember the expansion of his own feeble intellects, and pause. Let him feel the wisdom of God in what is partially concealed, as well as that which is revealed. In short, let him substitute humility for pride of reason. Let him have faith and live. The consideration of this subject is full of consolation, my hearers, and does not fail to bring with it lessons of humility and of profit, that, duly improved, would both chasten the heart and strengthen the feeble-minded man in his course. It is a blessed consolation to be able to lay the misdoubtings of our arrogant nature at the threshold of the dwelling-place of the Deity, from whence they shall be swept away. At that great opening of the portal, like the mist of the morning before the rising sun. It teaches us a lesson of humility, by impressing us with the imperfection of human powers, and by warning us of the many weak points where we are open to the attack of the great enemy of our race. It proves to us that we are in danger of being weak, when our vanity would fain soothe us into the belief that we are most strong. It forcibly points out to us the vainglory of intellect, and shows us the vast difference between a saving faith and the corollaries of a philosophical theology, and it teaches us to reduce our self-examination to the test 
of good works. But good works must be understood the fruits of repentance, the chiefest of which is charity, not the charity only which causes us to help the needy and comfort the suffering, but that feeling of universal philanthropy which, by teaching us to love, causes to judge with lenity all men, striking at the root of self-righteousness and warning us to be sparing of our condemnations of others, while our own salvation is not yet secure. The lesson of expediency, my brethren, which I would gather from the consideration of this subject, is most strongly inculcated by humility. On the heading and essential points of our faith, there is but little difference among those classes of Christians who acknowledge the attributes of the Savior, and depend on his mediation. But heresies have polluted every church, and schisms are the fruit of disputation. In order to arrest these dangers, and to ensure the union of his followers, it would seem that Christ had established his visible church, and delegated the ministry. Wise and holy men, the fathers of our religion, have expended their labors in clearing what was revealed from the obscurities of language, and the results of their experience and researches have been embodied in the form of evangelical discipline. That this discipline must be statutory is evident from the view of the weakness of human nature that we have already taken, and that it may be profitable to us and all who listen to its precepts and its liturgy, may God, in his infinite wisdom, grant, and now too, etc. With this ingenious reference to his own forms and ministry, Mr. Grant concluded his discourse. The most profound attention had been paid to the sermon during the whole of its delivery, although the prayers had not been received with so perfect demonstration of respect. This was by no means an intended slight of that liturgy to which the divine alluded, but was the habit of the people who owed their very existence as a distinct nation to the doctrinal character of their ancestors. Sundry looks of private dissatisfaction were exchanged between Hiram and one or two of the leading members of the conference, but the feeling went no further at that time, and the congregation, after receiving the blessing of Mr. Grant, dispersed in silence and with great decorum. End of chapter 11 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in January of 2009.